You know, if business does have a bigger responsibility, and that is is up for debate, and if um, and if it has the op- huge opportunity, which I definitely believe that it does, then the more that we talk cross industry, the more that we learn from different industries, the more that we can use business to look at how the NHS works um, and learn lessons from that. Then I think the more that opportunity will help, not just as individual and leaders, but also in building those businesses. And that's the kind of role for one question. Hello and welcome to Minter Dialogue, episode number 351. Today is Sunday, the 1st of December 2019. My name is Minter Dial and I'm your host for this podcast. And I want to thank you for choosing to take the time out of your busy day for the listen. I also want to give it a shout out and thanks for putting up a review of this show on iTunes to Adrian Swinsco and Topical Todd. This week's interview is with Sarah Parsonage. Sarah was previously Managing Director of Performance In and publisher of The Memo, and she founded and produces One Question, a unique event asking all speakers to tackle just one question. In this interview with Sarah, we discuss the inspiration behind One Question, which was the best one and why, the state of the events industry, how to create great events, what are the big challenges that business executives face that one question answers? And why to become a member? A passionate conversation. Sarah Parsonage, my goodness, how great to have you on the show. We've known each other for now many years, have hung out over numerous encounters, uh, and finally decided that I had to get you on the show. So, Sarah, you have an illustrious background, uh, really involved in marketing and events, which is something, of course, near to my heart. And you began this thing called the one question. So in your own words, how would you like to introduce yourself, Sarah? <laughs> Thank you. It's nice. Uh, it's nice to be asked. Um, one question is a network that forces uh, change um, through a series of different content um, online, in life and in print. Um, it challenges the way that you think about your everyday and um, breaks down certainly industry echo chambers, I think is probably the best way Um to describe it, I've started it in 2016 uh, in the iteration of events, uh, and we've now um, grown and scaled into a monthly newsletter, coffee table book, um, research, and an online video platform. So how did Sarah Parsonage get into one question? <laughs> um, so uh, the long, the short story yeah, long story short, I think, is that um, I was formerly MD of a B2B publisher <clears throat> specialising in performance marketing and decided that I didn't want to do that anymore. So I stepped down from that role and in doing so spent a lot of time in other industries doing lots of non-exec stuff, consultancy stuff and got completely um, disheartened by the state of the event space, specifically in marketing and advertising. Um, I think it's fair to say that it predominantly become a bit of a cash cow institution in which it was how much can we pay to put a keynote speaker on stage and therefore how much can we pay for um, people to attend and how many of those people can we get in one space at one time. 
Uh, and it was an echo chamber of, for example, marketing, talking to marketers about marketing, which only really served to be validation that you're doing a good job and a pat on the back or um, spying on competitors. But the real learnings and the real relationships, and for me specifically, the real change didn't come from those kind of events, and which I think is a real shame because actually events is... Uh, fundamental not only to businesses as part of a wider strategy but also to ourselves because I phenomenally I believe that what is very important is that relationships in life will always supersede those that are online it doesn't matter how um, how much it, the sort of innovation in technology scales the real relationships and the ones that are the most sustainable are the ones doing this kind of thing mm-hmm. um, as opposed to sort of ones that are conducted solely on Twitter or WhatsApp or whatever. Um, And so I decided that I wanted to change the event space predominantly. But I also wanted to create something that wasn't about echo chambers because in doing the due diligence and setting up one question, it became clear that actually the same is very true of finance, of healthcare. And of course, those sort of echo chamber events, as I call them, serve a purpose because we like to live in our comfort zones and, and actually business thrives within those comfort zones based very Um, obviously on who we're buying and selling uh, to and from but actually the real learnings and the real relationships is that if I was to look through one of my biggest challenges in business through the lens of a different industry how much would I learn and that's really where one question came about I wanted it to be simple I wanted it to be able to focus on one thing um, and I didn't want it to be a marketing event or a health event or a insert industry event Um, and so I was able to do that by asking one question through the lenses of many different industry perspectives and find out what kind of answers that we got. So as you say the the issue with events in these echo chambers is not specific to marketing I wanted to look at the events idea because at some level what has made the event space so fraught not just the the, the fact that people are making these business models or these different types of eco-chamber mm. systems. But to what extent do you feel that the digital world disrupted the notion of events or could enhance events? So I think this is really interesting because I actually don't think that the digital world disrupted an event in the sort of more traditional form of um, can we run a conference called conference for example but what I do think um, is that um, a lot of the publishing and a lot of the news content um, obviously with the rise of the internet became free-for-all um, it's obviously we're, we're seeing a, a sort of maybe a, a change now but certainly in 2010 and before um, content was becoming free it was very difficult to retain any Uh, subscriptions and so big publishers especially trade publishers and not just within marketing um, but within other industries were really struggling to retain those subscription numbers they were falling um, and fast because people could access this content for free and therefore didn't feel the need to subscribe to that monthly um, magazine especially in print and so the obvious thing for a lot of these huge publishers to do would be able to change that into a real life uh, environment in which they have the content because it's already in that magazine they have the subscription list of people that will come and see that and then you have this added value of learning and relationships um, and so it became absolutely saturated which pushed the um, the price up because the event industry is perceived to be this cash cow um, but actually events are incredibly expensive to run or can be um, and they're very hard to sustain especially when we're now in our industry especially we're in the marketing industry 
was seeing such saturation. Um, and so it just became an absolute free-for-all. And I think that's what, what I found really sad. Um, and, and certainly it then stopped being about this incredible experience that makes you feel something. And I had this debate a few years ago with a very good friend of mine um, where I was arguing that events should make you feel something um, and that should stay with you. And he was saying, no, don't be ridiculous. You know, you go to a Salesforce event and it doesn't, uh, it doesn't make you necessarily feel anything. It makes you feel excited at the time. Maybe you learn some stuff, but that feeling fades quite quickly. Um, and I think that's kind of a really good example of where maybe the industry has gone wrong. So what if you were running a brand, a commercial brand, mm-hmm. company selling, you know, Doritos or whatever? What advice would you give them in the idea, because obviously brands are into this idea of community and, mm-hmm. and fans and all this. How would you suggest that they look at orchestrating events as part of their portfolio of activities to garner fans and, and uh, clients? Uh, well, first of all, do they need to do an event? It's like anything, right? Any marketing channel, do you need to be doing this particular thing? And actually, what are the objectives? Because for Doritos, their community is quite big. Um, and so for them to do an event for their community, it would be almost impossible. Um, well, certainly on, on if they want to include everybody. So I think it's looking at, is that something they really need to do? And also, why? Why are they wanting to do it? It's like anything. It's like a client of mine saying to me um, in the marketing days, I want to be on Snapchat. Well, why? Why do you want to be on Snapchat? Because it's new and because it's shiny or because it actually adds value to what your over objectives are, either marketing or, or business. Um, so those would be the first two things which I would challenge with. And then I think it would, depending on what those answers are, it would be regional, community-based to achieve those. Mm-hmm. Actually going into the places in which they need to talk to um, and arguably, even for a brand like Doritos, that would be really important. Um, but otherwise, it's not going to work. I don't know why I took Doritos <laughs> in. Uh, but as you were speaking before and talking about these events, mm. naturally make you feel something. Well, great. There's this notion of, of networking and meeting people. But when you go to some of these conferences that have 50,000, 100,000 people, the chances of you not being able to find somebody interesting are rare because within 40,000 people, then the onus is on you as an individual to find the person. Yet, you also come across a lot of drab, non-interesting people, at least not pertinent to your life. And so it's non-curated, and therefore it's a little bit up to luck in order to make the meeting happen that leaves you something which is lasting. could be, for example, a new friendship that lasts forever. Yeah, absolutely. Um, And so I think one of the things I have to caveat is that I have a very romantic notion of what I'm doing. um, And I fully admit that. Um, But also, it's something I passionately believe in, because the events that you're talking about, um, obviously serve a purpose, of course they do, whether they really shape change, or whether they make you feel anything uh, is... Um, is I guess debatable and also I think the reaction that you're talking about is perhaps through a relationship of a lifetime friend whereas a lot of these events exist through a commercial win so to speak a way of doing business um, a new customer. yeah a new customer a new lead and is that lead going to convert and that's why a lot of companies do these things and of course that's why they should do these things but Again, it comes back to the same thing that I should get a T-shirt with a written on, you know, quality over quantity, always for me. Um, And so I guess the the type of change that I talk about and and the line about it should make you feel something um, 
And I guess an example of that could be um, a creating a partnership that generates significant ROI. So Bloomberg were one of our partners for um, uh, this year, 2019 annual event, which asked, does purpose really drive profit? Um, and this is all over the website, so I'm sure Cara won't mind. Um, the contact, my contact uh, at Bloomberg. And in our post-event meeting, she described one question as um, indulgence with ROI. Because it gives you this opportunity in which to have conversations that you wouldn't normally have in an intimate environment um, through really curated content um, that will probably generate really good future business relationships, but also makes you as a person feel like you've learned something. It changes how you think about something. Um, And in the first year, 2016, great example, um, and still makes me quite emotional, but we had, um, has technology... How do you successfully marry technology and humanity? So many questions. I think it was one you, you came to, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, and we had the photographer, Giles Dooley, who now has become uh, very well known. Um, and at the time, he was still um, sort of uh, doing a lot of his fundraising through um, some of his world, uh, third world um, photography. And he'd been this um, photographer in fashion, predominantly in music, and changed it to take... Um, photos of of war victims and as a result lost um, some of his limbs and he did this impassioned session answering the question on how do you successfully marry technology and humanity through the lens of photography Um, there wasn't a dry in the house it was incredibly moving it really took everybody's out of their industry particularly in that moment Mm -hmm. Um, and a few months later I had a, a delegate who got in touch a guest who emailed um, the email address for one question and said, you know, it was such a wonderful event. I don't know what your overall objective is for it, because at this point it was in its first iteration. But I wanted you to know that we've cancelled our family holiday and we're actually going to go and volunteer to help some of these war victims, um, based on what Giles said. Now, that's one example of my... Um, belief in which events can shape change but that manifests itself in so many different ways that you just don't get on a commercially um, well not commercially but a lead generation driven Mm. 150,000 person conference because the meetings that you set up generally don't happen the wi-fi kind of doesn't work the people don't turn up everything changes and that's even if you can find that person Mm. Um, so one question is completely different to those type of events what I answered your question. I'm not sure if Yes, it, it did. Is. No, no, it is beautiful. And in the end of the day, it's more of a conversation somehow. <laughs> and and the the uh, statement that uh, the Bloomberg woman said was, mm. which is indulgence with probable RI. The way I react to that is, first of all, it's indulgence as opposed to sales or some commercialness, which is deeply human. And second of all, the word probable was interesting to me. Because as soon as it becomes too certain, it becomes too formulaic, to unhuman and not enough messiness. So the probability of that email of Fragiles <clears throat> coming through, well, you, you didn't plan on that, B- but it did happen. And so it's a testament to making things happen. So I wanted to ask you what you've done now for? Four, annual, four? Conference. four annual conferences. You've got next one coming next this. in 2020. Yeah. How do you come up with the one question? <laughs> I really wish that there was some... Um, incredibly forensic scientific response but there isn't there genuinely isn't so when we asked has technology enhanced or damaged our experiences Um, and uh, completely and obviously as you know have known me quite well and having um, sort of known one question since it's um, since its beginning we curate 
the the conference that is the most important part that and the network and the community but the curation is absolutely um key to obviously it's called one question it has to be um and we had a series of different talks throughout that day that focused around um mental health and the ability to stop and actually the ability for us to take more control around the way that we use technology Um, And it was fascinating because there came out so many different threads from that particular conference and from the different sessions. Um, One uh, Rankin, who I interviewed, the photographer and filmmaker at the end of the day, actually did a call, kind of a call to arms to say, we need to be able to control how we use technology. Um, And um, and that's really what then... um, what then feeds the next question. It's the, it's the provocation and it's the thinking that comes out of that full day, which, as you can imagine, is vast, mm-hmm. that then starts to shape. And so through a lot of those conversations, I started to think, OK, well, what's fundamental to business? What's absolutely fundamental to business, aside from, obviously, technology and the innovation there, but also people, right? People are fundamental to business and profit. Um, because without profit, you can't do a lot, really, um, you can invest it back into the business, but yeah, absolutely. Um, uh, and then it got me thinking to purpose and what actually is a company's purpose nowadays. And also, there's a slight, I suppose, mischievous part of me that mm. I did uh, that I did talk about at the the conference this year is that the marketing industry, especially, has this trend with bastardizing any word, um, and so purpose became a buzzword, um, and. And it's a shame in the same way that community has, because if you take it back to what it actually means, um, it means something very different. Mm. Um, and so I was doing a slight play on does purpose really drive profit um, was came from that. But then we twisted it on our heads. So, of course, we had Patagonia talking about it from the brand perspective and actually what's the responsibility of a brand um, on society? Is there any and how do they do that? Um, and of course, Alex Weller, who's. Um, marketing director for Europe said well we don't really call it purpose because it's the it's the passion but we also had a political perspective that actually said okay well arguably in the states it's slightly different financially but arguably over here it's not about money and winning money so if you change the definition of profit to votes then surely politics should be purpose-driven throughout so if you ask that question to politics, what does that look like? If you ask that question to a major in the army, which is what we did, what does that look like? Because we all know that you don't earn an absolute fortune um, uh, being in the army, and certainly your family doesn't. Or in politics. Or in politics, exactly. So then, so there's all these different ways that you can play with this question as soon as you look it through the lens. And I suppose that's how we come up with the next question. Mm. Also, I have um, an incredibly robust advisory board and board um, both of which have played quite a big part in that. So tell us about the um, business model, speaking of purpose. Mm-hmm. Um, so the business model has evolved. I always wanted to start one question through the f- form of events because it goes back to my point of if I send you an email from one question, you might read it, maybe, maybe not. It might even not even get to you. But if you've been to a one question event and you've loved it, um, then you're going to you're going to read that email. Mm-hmm. So I always wanted to start it in events, and we did the very traditional model as a lot of events do through sponsorship and ticket sales. And we've evolved now, having done our fourth conference in our our second debate. So we've set up um, a membership, um, so you can become a member of One Question, um, which gives you access to the annual event, which is now members only. Gives you access to the debating series, all of our research, our video archive, our coffee table books, and lots more to come. Um, and then we have key partners. So we have industry partners 
um, that can be involved in the different perspectives and then we have program partners that can be involved in in one question and and they through that we really take the the one question ethos which is examining big societal and business challenges through the lens of different industries well that is exactly what my next question was going to be about which is <laughs> how do you describe the core challenges for business and and to what extent and how is one question the solution um so this is really interesting and i don't uh i don't sort of pertain to have all of the answers obviously but i think um I think, as we were saying earlier in part of our discussion, and I guess there's a few parts to this answer, um, businesses now, for me, have a bigger responsibility than they've ever had before in order to shape change. Um, And when I say before, I mean in my lifetime and certainly in my working lifetime, which isn't a vast amount of time. But certainly when my dad ran his business, he was able to look at maybe the FT or the different media outlets to shape some of the economical decisions that he would make. And obviously government played a huge part in that. And I think our trust in those two institutions has changed and evolved. I do think that there is an argument to say it's it's coming full circle again. But certainly through a period of time, um, we don't use those institutions in the same way to shape those decisions. So why do you think that business now has more responsibility than it did in the past? To what, what has created that particular change? I, th- I think, to be honest, I think it's come through um, a lot to do with the internet, technological innovation, the ability to create communities of massive scale. Um, the likes of Facebook that didn't exist when I was a teenager th- have, have obviously shaped that change. But I think more importantly for me, um, and this is probably an entirely different podcast, but they've shaped that they have more influence and they have certainly have more power. And we've seen it because, again, that comes through the um, the sort of change in the publishing space. So I just were thinking about that. You have the scale of the Facebooks and Googles, but maybe it's also the direct contact with, so the influence, but the direct contact both ways that has rendered, it's no longer a 30-second spot. It's a, because I could communicate out and I could influence through advertising before scale, but this notion of being direct and two-way has meant that companies have a different relationship with their consumers than in the past, whereas maybe a, a councilman or an MP might have gone out in the street and pounded the pavement to get that contact with the locals, but companies didn't do that before because it just wasn't feasible. Yeah, absolutely. I, it's also constant. It's always on. You can contact your customer at any time in any in many different ways. Mm. And I also think that, ironically, and this is purely opinion, there are a lot of organisations out there that can do that. They can contact their customers really quickly. And the legislation behind that from them and the risk professionally and PR is not doing that. But we had... Um, somebody from the uh, the Obama campaign speak for us in 2017 on Can You Trust Technology? And the way the White House communicated to its constituencies and to the world um, back in, I don't know, the early 90s, for example, was very different to how they do now, right? Yeah, sure. But of course, that, that has to be in some way, shape or form controlled. Mm-hmm. Um, and businesses don't necessarily have that same level of control. They have much more ease to a point, of course. Um, so I think there's lots of reasons why um, businesses has got more have got has got more power, and industry has got arguably more power. The rise of Salesforce and the influence, and obviously when you're the sort of the size of Salesforce, and obviously Benioff's just come out and done his book, so we'll see what what that actually comes to. Mm-hmm. But um, you mean the publishers 
And uh, books still have a purpose? Well, I was talking about more whether his kind of manifesto will actually reap anything. So we'll see. Um, and I'm, I'm sort of, I guess... Yeah, it'd be interesting to see how that works out. But the point being is that when you have the sort of profit, you can obviously do a huge amount with that. Mm. So I think there's that. And there's also this time now where being a CEO is not just about um, balancing books, counting and toilet rolls. It's about having an opinion and more so being able to articulate that opinion to create a more diverse workforce, to ensure that you're building a sustainable planet, for the, a sustainable business for the planet and for the future generations, to ensure that you are... Um, adhering to gender equality to ensure that you etc 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 and it goes on and it goes on and it's arguably one of the hardest jobs I think to have um, and so I think um, what one question does in that in, the, in that role is that it asks big questions but it enables those companies to talk to each other mm-hmm. you know if business does have a bigger responsibility and that is is up for debate and if um and if it has the op- huge opportunity, which I definitely believe that it does, then the more that we talk cross industry, the more that we learn from different industries, the more that we can use business to look at how the NHS works um, and learn lessons from that, then I think the more that opportunity will help, not just as individual and leaders, but also in building those businesses. And that's the kind of role for one question, I think. It, it strikes me, Sarah, listening to you about the CEO conundrum. I've written a lot about this notion of introducing politics into the business boardroom and to what extent should CEOs be latching on to political issues. What what you're telling me makes me think that for certain CEOs, coming to a one question or being part of that community uh, will, on the one hand, give permission to look at political issues and also field and benchmark and understand where should I be pushing. The issue at some level is that you can't just be, you know, doing the thing that everybody's doing because, well, then you, you, there's no sound bite to that. It's just, well, you're doing, you don't believe that we should uh, have um, pedophilia? Well, well, that's not a political statement. That is an obviousness. But coming up with something that is, stands out, is valid in your community for your business is is yet a very rare thing and and it sounds like your community is more embracing that idea I think so yeah I think so and I think it's also about being making those decisions now is incredibly difficult and and one question isn't just about CEOs it's also about giving um, a platform to voices that don't always get heard um three different industries Yes, it does um, attract a senior audience, um, arguably, and it attracts a very curious audience. But also, and I think going back to to Cara's point, it gives you the opportunity to learn so much more and look at your business and the issues that you're having, whether it is how do I communicate to a workforce why we actually exist and why is that important to us, if it is. How do I communicate to our shareholders why that is important? Um, How do I actually adhere to building a more sustainable business and what does that look like through the lens of B Corp, for example? Um, and, And how... Do we approach that? And what are they doing in the NHS? And what can, um, I don't know, one company, one sizable company look at um, and how what they're going through and what they're struggling through could support what the NHS is going through? And it might be very different. Um, I use uh, Tom's as an example. So Lisa Hogg, marketing director, because she did the marketing perspective, um, talked for us again on the same purpose and profit question. Um, and, uh, and they have the one-for-one model 
Um, the shoe, shoe, yeah, shoe company. Yeah, the shoe company that have the one-for-one one model. Um, and for them, their purpose, for want of a better word, their giving, as they call it, is a line on the P&L. And so having that insight into actually what purpose is for them was able to give a room from other people, from Unilever to IBM to, um, to Sony Music, the idea of actually what that looks like. Um, and, and, you know, then you have somebody from, uh, from the army, Major, Major Andrew Fox, um, who was brilliant. And he talks about actually his purpose is to create an environment in which we all feel safe. Um, uh, and... And it's Which about is sort of counterintuitive to what people think about in the army. They, they popping off heads is what they, you know, people will think about. But that is a much more pacific and, and noble cause. Yeah, absolutely. And again, like anything, you can look at it in two different ways, right? There are there are cynical ways of looking at it. There are more optimistic and positive ways of looking at it. And that's the the point of the question. And as I said to you um, earlier, our question next year. Um, how can uh, business make society better? Automatically asks, well. Does society need to be better? What does better look like? How do we define better? Um, and is it the role of business to do that? Of the four questions you've done, maybe the fifth to come, do you have a favorite so far? Question? Yeah. Ooh. Um, I think I think I have favorite perspectives and favorite speakers mm-hmm. to specific questions. Yeah. I love all the questions. I really, I really, really loved this year um, because I think it was our first move away from using a technology-based question, which was really important to me. And I loved the idea. I loved the different perspectives of how we answer that. So I think this year's question was one of my favorite. I actually think next year's is is maybe one of our best. Um, yeah. So. Well, inevitably, I think the, the the context within which these questions come favors and slants which question is the best because it's just it's there's a contemporaneous to each question and and that's the feeling I get having observed how you've grown so how do you measure success and let's say in five ten years where is one question <laughs> it's a great um it's a great question, uh, ironically, and um, I uh, I think success means different things for different people, and certainly does for me. Um, I want one question to uh, to build and grow, and actually um, s- facilitate conversations that can shape change within different industries, especially. Um, and that will take time for sure. Um, but I think that's what success looks like for me to build a community um, of. Um, of people that can shape change within their own environments through conversations that we've um, started and created and continued conversation, which is obviously what we're working on at the moment. Um, and and to, to, to stand by what I said at the beginning, which is one question is designed to challenge the way that you think about your everyday. Um, and if you go through life with that um, that call to action, so to speak, it, it really changes, it does change the way that you think. Um, so I think that, and then for me, there is a very personal um bit of success which means at some point Italy will be uh, a a key on the horizon I think for for me personally Um, but yeah I would like to take one question into the US which is our plan certainly for 2020 I would like to expand it into Asia and be able to ask that question from different cultures and different businesses and then bring it all together Um, again with this overall view to to shape change and also take it regionally within within the UK to start with for example Um, so yeah so for people who are listening, who is the ideal one questionee or whatever you want to call the, the ideal candidate to join your community? 
I think it, it changed. It, it does range um, because there's a there's a wealth of people who are naturally very curious and who um, want a reason to get out of bed in the morning that is um, is more than just maybe their their job. And there's some people that um, that thrive on 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 routine and um, and learning outside of that routine is really exciting. But maybe they're not naturally that way. So I think there is different people. I think overall, one question: people that love one question um and are committed to it and invested in it and see the real value behind it and what it can do um are curious they are um natural um thinkers and changers um and I think we do attract a relatively um a senior audience because one question there's no it's very intimate um, it is obviously members only. There are no slides. So all of the sessions are either interview form or individual presentations. And there's a natural um, request or ask to be very engaged. And I think as a result of that, it attracts maybe a more senior a senior audience. Um, there is a very obvious commercial benefit to anybody in the room and to any partners involved. But the um, aggressive lead generation element to it is not something that exists so I think if that is your sole purpose then it's one question probably isn't the community or event to for for you I think it's probably a fair way but it's hard because I call we all talk about people it is one question is you get it or you don't the way I describe it or I would describe it Sarah is people are interested in doing good with business that is to say using business as a conduit for good that's the way I describe it Clearly, it's the question for 2020. Um, <laughs> how can people uh, follow you, Sarah, get in touch, uh, and, of course, sign up for One Question? So uh, everything about One Question is on our website, onequestion.live. Um, I'm on um, Twitter predominantly. I tend not to use any other form of social. I'm not very good at LinkedIn. Um, or email. Email us at the onequestion.live or email me. Um, I mean, there's lots of different ways. We have our own Twitter, uh, underscore onequestion. Um, and um, yeah so I think those are all the different ways to find out we've got massive massive plans for next year which is equally as exciting as it is daunting so now's a good time to get involved beautiful congratulations Sarah a wonderful project and I think uh, you're on to a, a lovely success and I love the model and I love the vibe and the energy that you bring to it thank you Sarah thank you very much thank you. thanks for having listened to this recording of the Minter Dialogue show you'll find the show notes and other blog posts on minterdial.com If you enjoyed the show, please head over to iTunes to give a rating and review. And to finish, here's a song I wrote with Stephanie Singer, A Convinced Man.
arms of a woman I'm a convinced man challenge my fate I'm a convinced man competitions in me a convinced man in the arms of a woman despise revenges and struggle to see live for the challenge so life's not incomplete what's wrong with challenge I know soon all die I like the feel of a stranger tucked around me precipitating the danger to feel free trust in my reason and let me show you why Of news about LinkedIn, Indeed, Google, and just about every other recruitment tech company out there? Hell yeah. I'm Chad. I'm Cheese. We're the Chad and Cheese Podcast. All the latest recruiting news and insights are on our show. Dripping in snark and attitude. Subscribe today wherever you listen to your podcasts. We, we out. out.